Why do white people think you know it all? Like, <laughs> you are <laughs> custodians of time. Like, <laughs> why are you in heaven when God created time? Stop, like, give me a break. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. That's a great question. Uh, why I'll do, try to explain. Yeah, Dan, uh, you want to take that? No. Why do white people think they know it all? I, I, With Dan Prevet. Especially on time stuff. On time stuff? If, if you come... Ali as a black person that's a surprise is celebrated like <laughs> but a white person can come late and still not a big deal because they naturally keep time so oh, they have the, so they have the freedom to be late I well, just know that I was outside your house two minutes early that is, uh, <laughs> and it would, made me carry my I did, breakfast I did. to your car because <laughs> I needed to be the black break. person who wasted a white man's time so <laughs> that's literally all this anyway <laughs> That's, I know what you're saying, but that feels so real. It does. It does. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Um, By the way, this is how we start these. Okay. We just go. Yeah, so we're, we're in just, it now. We're very casual. I'm here with Gideon, oh. my friend Gideon. Yep. All right. Gideon. Yeah. Boy. There you go. Gideon Mugambi. Toimonyum boy. Yeah, I couldn't say all that, so I was going to awesome. let you do it. I love it. Mm -hmm. uh, where are you from, Gideon? From Kenya, in Eastern Africa, a place called Meru, Meru County. Beautiful. The eastern part of Mount, Mount Kenya. Is it, uh, is it, uh, cause I know Nairobi is a, is a huge bustling metropolis. Yeah. Are you in a more rural area? Yes, is it more a city? Rural. More rural. I only got okay. to go to Nairobi at 22, 23. Okay. So rural, rural. Like. So you're like, you're like a country kid. And then did you go to Nairobi for school? Oh, please. I wish. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> like I, in high school, I used to have kids go to Nairobi for mm -hmm. their, during their breaks. And that was like. Where are you going? We're going to Nairobi. We're going to Umoja Estate. We're going to this and that. And like, that was quite something. Like such a luxury. I would never, I would never dream of ever going to Nairobi. How, how, is it crazy to you and to uh, your friends and family that you live in Los Angeles now? They don't even know what to think about that. Like, it's just beyond, it's not, it's not in this world. Right. So, LA, like, living in Nairobi or some big city is surprising enough or it's overwhelming enough right then going to america and la that's they don't we don't know what to do with that yeah la is like barely america it's, it's like it's beyond yeah it's a different it's category like, yeah yeah, I feel like when people from Ohio come to Los Angeles they're like wow you really changed <laughs> yeah, you're, you're yeah. doing it so if you come from it's it's several degrees of separation. How long have you been here? This is the first time we're meeting, so oh, we're, yeah. we're yeah. having to do lots of introductory things. But uh, you're you're currently at Fuller, or are you all done? I'm currently at Fuller. Graduation is on Saturday. Okay, congratulations. So I don't know how many. I know my friend who knows how many seconds to graduation, but I'm, I'm <laughs> at least I know about days. I know it's three. that's what seminary will do to you. Yeah, is yeah. he a, is he a yeah. white friend? Is he keeping track yes, of time? Is, yes, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> so he's a white friend from yeah from Connecticut, from close to oh, that's the Yale, whitest, Yale yeah, and mm. wherever. So yeah, so if you I thought know, Pasadena was white, so I know why he's keeping. He actually knows how many seconds to graduation, and I'm like, 
but how do you know what time you're going to count up to? He said 10 a.m. on Saturday. And I'm like, all right. So anytime I want to know how many, how long, far away. Anyway, I've been here for two years and uh, three months. I came in spring of 2015. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And what a lot of what interested me about Gideon's story was we kind of met at a, at a weird point mm-hmm. uh, at Fuller. There was a woman who went missing. And where is, where is she from? She's from Kenya. She was from Kenya. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, <laughs> and there was kind of a lackluster show of support in finding her and in activating yes. the community. And I kind of stumbled into a conversation because I was friends with Steve and Tawana. Tawana mm-hmm. we've actually had mm-hmm. on the show. Yeah. And they were just kind of having it out about how Fuller saw African-American students versus how Fuller was treating African students. And I was just sitting there, probably one of the only white people in the circle, because we just walked into it and it was already happening. And I was like, I am just going to not make any sudden movements and just observe what's happening. Because it was... I, didn't, I, I was mad. Just you were my, pissed. I was like, um, yeah. because Stephen G was there. He was my, my friend in Tawana mm-hmm. and a few other, and Sheila from Kenya. And uh, they were talking and I was like, if it was an African-American person that this thing was happening around here, you guys would be all over the place, like with your placards and everything that, and it would be an emergency. Everyone yeah. would be doing something. But now, since it's some from, someone from 10,000 miles away, who cares whether she's alive or dead? So for so a little... That was really... Anyway. For a little bit of backstory, because I'm unfamiliar with the case. So this was a Fuller student yeah. who, okay, she went missing. Um, and there was just, there was not like a huge show of support on campus in terms of people trying to get involved in, was law enforcement on it? Did it get serious enough to They to had informed point? law enforcement. You probably know more than I do because you're pretty involved. Yeah, at, but... the, at that time, it was so very raw because yeah. I think it was just like almost a month into, like since she had disappeared and nothing much was happening. Mm, a month. I think so. And, and anyway, that's in the okay. past, but now she's been found. So it's, okay. we praise the Lord for so that. So she's okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah after okay. It was a long time. She resurfaced, resurfaced after 15 months. Mm-hmm. What? After Did... tears and fears and frustrations and all that. So anyway, that's how and my exchange was between me and Stephen G on a friendly basis. But I was really, yeah. I was like, if it was one of you, you would be everyone will be spending sleepless nights. But yeah. now, since it's one of us and who knows, who cares, a Kenyan student or whatever. So that's the same I was making. And I'm so glad something started and Tawana yeah. stepped in and said, oh, I, only, I, I, I already wrote emails. You should yeah. have, anyway. Yeah, I, I'm great. so glad we had that. It was just, a, it was just a massive perspective <laughs> shift of like hearing someone that felt even more marginalized than African-Americans. Oh, that, that's a point, of course. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. Can yeah. you, can you, I mean, I know that's a huge topic, but um, I don't even know how to start chipping away at what your experience has been in America. I guess, how do you, how do you feel as an African man just living day to day in America? How do you feel treated? Do you feel welcomed? Do you feel ostracized? Do you feel threatened? How is the overall experience living in America and living in, in Pasadena, which is, you know, a certainly... A little bit more Anglo. Yeah. Um, what is what has that experience been like for you overall? I'm not sure how to answer that question because um, if I said I feel more, I feel hated or targeted and stuff, that I would sound like I'm important as if people notice. I think the reverse is true. Sometimes no one even knows that you're there. Hmm. So feeling as feeling 
anonymous mm -hmm. as if you don't matter hmm. as if your voice doesn't it's not like doesn't make a difference i think to me that's that's more so there's a danger of oh you could be shot or shot by a policeman because you're black and all that well maybe but mostly the concerns is to try to shout louder so people might notice you or might even want to seek your mm -hmm. opinion because mostly it's like it doesn't matter yeah or who cares that you're here you're just like this extreme outsider and and that's what i say if african-americans our brothers and sisters african-americans feel like they are minorities or they are outsiders in the system then we are outsiders or i am an outsider exponentially hmm. what kind of social groups in terms of churches did you did you ever find like a church home where you enjoyed going week after week attending who were the people that you um who'd you connect with who became your friends who um, as as like a, a foreigner in America, studying at an American school, surrounded largely by Americans. I know there are plenty of foreign people at Fuller, but um, who did you click with? Who became your your people? So that's a very interesting question because just before I flew here, uh, fr several friends had um, warned me that my life here would be a lonely affair. Mm. That because American life is uh, fast-paced uh, and you don't have people slowing down enough to say hi mm -hmm. everyone is rushing to the next task so I was really 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 concerned and I, I remember talking to my mother she's like close to 80 years and she I said mom can you imagine a week to I, I said can you imagine that in America I would not have anyone to talk to because everyone is so busy and then she said my son <laughs> God will give you your friends God will give you your friends and that's very significant from uh, an elderly African, from a parent, from mm -hmm. an African context. That's a blessing. And so I've seen it and it's, it's happened and our prophecy or prayer has been answered countless times. And I have, I've, I'm so glad to report that I've, I've enjoyed very enriching friendships mm -hmm. from church at Pasadena Foursquare Church, mm -hmm. where, I, where I went to some smaller church up in Altidina and then eventually after like a month being here or two, I moved to Pasadena Foursquare Church. That's where I've been. That would be my church home. I actually preached my last, my farewell sermon or reflection to them about two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And it was a great, great parting shot. Like they prayed for me. We were just all in tears. We cried, mm -hmm. we parted with, and I felt ironically towards the end of my stay in that church is when I felt more at home. Mm -hmm. Because at times I would go to the church and just feel out of place. Because mostly yeah. the church would be talking about, hey, their vision for um, Amsterdam, Sri Lanka, and elsewhere. And there are times I felt like I'm an alien. Like mm. from Kenya or African, I'm like, no one seems like... Hmm. Kenya is just nowhere within the radar as much as they... And they, not, not because they don't mean well, but it just that's where their hearts are. So there are times it just took too much faith to walk into the church and again that the fact that i was walking in the church in winter 30 minutes walk to hill yeah. and warner that it was, took too much faith to go to church that really 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 <laughs> took that's a word like the walk i know some of you guys just like oh it's a 
three minutes drive like that's almost doesn't take any commitment mm-hmm. you just hop into your car and for me it had to be walking in winter like the rains and all that or summer mm-hmm. sun under that and you're sweating and drenching and go and finish up church maybe once in a while someone might oh how are you going getting home and then give yeah. me a yeah get, get i need a ride for sure you remember, remember you told me that, that yeah and i was going to walk to church that summer morning and i was later i was going to speak mm-hmm. now that at least you know what i'm talking about yeah and i meet you there behind the uh, whatever prayer garden and you're like who do you need a ride and i was like who place the lord placed you here in the right and I got that's how I got so once in a while mm-hmm. it happened like that there are such miracles so that life that's, that's what I'm saying it takes faith right yeah. and God to have it and do it with some good attitude which is not because you beat mm-hmm. an scripts in like mm-hmm. what these people think I am and then all this talk about we are family we look out for each other I'm like you don't even know how I got to church mm-hmm. you don't even know and you say hey I see you God bless you how is your how is your family doing and all that Actually, some even a brother at church some day, sometime in 2015 asked me, "Hey, does your wife miss you?" Uh, or I don't know how he framed the question, but um, and for m- months on end, I was bitter. I was angry. Like I was like, "You are always cuddling your wife or holding their hand. You're always seated and you're patting each other's back at church, and you ask me whether my wife misses me. What does that mean? Unless you're implying that because I am black." And African, rural African, then I'm savage. And so our feelings and emotions are different. Like there's mm. so much. So when you just ask such a question, it might not even be loaded or with stuff. But what does that mean? Yeah. So my girlfriend and I once got in a fight because I asked her if she was tired. It sounds stupid, right? Well, the only thing truly stupid about it was my question. As she had already said that she was exhausted, which made it feel like I wasn't listening to her and made her feel pressured to have more energy after a long week. It's crazy what a mindless question can make someone feel. Voltaire once quipped, judge a man by his questions rather than by his answers. I'm not gonna lie though, Gideon lost me when he described how he interpreted the married couple's questions about his wife missing him. Do I think it was a stupid question? Yes. Do I think they had some agenda behind their question? Possibly. At worst, I think they may judge him for leaving his family to get an education in America. But do I think there was a racist perspective about savage Africans lacking basic human emotions? No, I don't think so. But that's not important. What's important is to realize there was an underlying condition of anger and disconnection, and all it took was one stupid question from someone feigning interest in Gideon's life to unravel it all. Have you ever had a friend or family member who never asked you any questions about yourself, and if they did, it was so labored, awkward, or shallow that you kind of wish they went back to not asking any questions at all? Now, I know I usually try to dive into more academic topics surrounding theological complexities, But in a season of watching several loved ones struggle with depression, death, and despair, it seems more important to simply reflect on our basic human needs like listening and loving each other well. And I think at the end of this breakdown, my goal is solely to inspire you to listen a little more intently to those around you and then respond with as much grace and genuine interest as you can muster. So here are five ways to intentionally ask better questions and make a positive impact on those around you. One, slow down. Part of why we ask silly questions or don't ask questions at all is because we're not fully present. 
We often have an underlying wave of anxiety telling us where we should be next or what we need to do before the end of the day, rather than realizing that the person in front of us might be on the verge of tears. Dallas Willard, an American philosopher and spiritualist, said, The key to being a great leader is to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. It's okay to be busy, all great men and women are, but prioritizing your life around deep rest and presence will pay dividends for not only you, but everyone you come into contact with. 2. Remember the details. Do you remember people's names? Dale Carnegie said, A person's name is to that person the sweetest, most important sound in any language. You really can't use names enough. And if you want to make someone feel really loved, don't just remember their name, but the names of their family, friends, teachers, co-workers. It's unbelievable how simple and sweet this gesture is. 3. Cultivate curiosity. Time Magazine put out an article on stimulating curiosity that described the importance of learning the other's language, as new language is the gateway to new thoughts and new interests. Every sport, company, country, religion, and art form has its own unique twist on language that helps define it as a culture. So dive in and get fluent with your peers' terminology so when you bump into Mike from accounting, you'll at least understand that being a CIA is different than being in the CIA. Look it up. 4. Body language. Eye contact is the number one most important aspect of your body language. It takes less than a second for us to feel disengaged if someone turns their back or let's say shifts their eyes to check their phone. In Amy Cuddy's TED talk on body language, she describes how impactful our body language is actually on ourselves. So our mind reacts to our posture and eye contact as much as others do. This is why teachers move troublesome children to the front of the classroom because simply being physically closer to the material can keep our minds more engaged. So lean in and look up. 5. Hone your intuition. Intuition is essentially your gut knowledge of a situation. Now this may seem a little more ethereal, but it's an essential component of connecting with people. Steve Jobs called intuition more important than intellect. And in the book Answers for Aristotle, author Massimo Piglucci describes how the science of brain activity and the philosophy of mindfulness continually intersect to help us lead the most meaningful life possible. Massimo describes intuition as transcending conscious thought and developing instinctive, subconscious behavior. In my mind, this is how people navigate between typical small talk at a party and that four-hour conversation about our deepest questions and dreams. Intuition helps us sense who's down to get introspective or who just wants to keep it light. Intuition also trains us to instinctively collect relevant details people provide in even the most innocuous conversations and ultimately determine how best to engage them in any given context. Massimo says most people don't become highly intuitive because we simply avoid doing the work, which requires mindful attention to the areas where mistakes are still being made and an intense focus to correct them. Oftentimes we need some good old-fashioned honest feedback from loved ones to tell us when they feel ignored by us, either because we talk incessantly about ourselves or simply never ask any thoughtful questions. It takes a great deal of self-critical reflection to realize, admit, and correct the fact that we may be asking thoughtless, insensitive, or no questions at all because we aren't curious about people's lives, we don't remember the details they've told us before, our body language makes us feel disengaged, and we're simply in a hurry all the time. It is, however, one of the most meaningful changes we can make in our lives because I believe the quality of our questions determines the quality of our relationships. With that said, let's get back to Gideon. I think that right now it seems to be that um, 
Africa is leading the way in terms of where the church is going oh, to please. be moving. Yeah, I keep hearing that all the time, but I'm just like, because I'm so tired of that. Like, what? Really? Tell yeah, me, tell you. me, tell me why. Because the people that say that, mm-hmm. like, what does leading look like? Mm-hmm. What does look leading? <laughs> what does leading look like? Leading the way? I'm here in the U.S. trying to. I had to come here and leave my family and pay the price of being far away from my village mm-hmm. and my context because I wanted to hear from the best of the best. Like this is where the leaders of the church are. This is where all the theologians are. This is all where all the textbooks we read in Nairobi are written from. Mm-hmm. So I had to come closer to the source. This is where all the resources are mm-hmm. for the church and everything. How is African leading? Do you think it's a difference in leading the way versus intellectually leading the way and spiritually, communally, socially activism, uh, social activism leading the way? Do you think there's a difference between, like Africa, it seems like they're leading the way, quote unquote, in amassing congregations and amassing churches and being devoted to the spirit and getting into uh, whatever God is moving and doing in the world versus the West, which is logic, study. Yeah, you do have to come here or the UK where you're going to get an education. But as far as amassing a congregation that's going to get active in the community, that's where I think people say Africa is leading the way because they're mobilizing. Also, people. so and it's, we, aren't we supposed to be a global body, right? Mm-hmm. The body of Christ. All right? Yeah. So, well, then you would expect that in a global uh, dialogue table, then everyone would have an equal amount of time or voice, opportunity to air their voice or opinion on how the way forward for the church, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think in on average, and um, at the risk of uh, generalizing, I would still say that the, the Western church, whoever it is, they get to have the final say, the mm. final word to determine what needs to be done. They are the ones who know where the needs are, what Africa needs, what Asia needs, what Latin America needs. Hmm. And I think still we have a long way to go. Now I know people might want to argue it and like try to get around it and all that, or we are doing better. But I think still the imposition and the feelings of superiority and the colonizing mindset is so prevalent. As I've always said elsewhere, it's always balancing the tension between gratitude and grumbling, hmm. which I think are two legs that need, we need all the time, or I need to stand on every time. Without either, I can't, we can't stand, or we can't really be balanced. If you guys come to Kenya, we just met today, Dan, if you come to Kenya, every congregation will be open for you, even the biggest congregation in Kenya. Just because either you are white or you have a generous frame or whatever it is you want to blame it on. <laughs> but for whatever reason, now it doesn't matter whether you slept throughout the night drinking and sleeping with women. But just by virtue of your advantage and privilege, yeah. congregation, now that will not happen to me, a person who is working by faith and graduating with a master's degree and obeying God's voice mm. from rural Africa. I need to prove, I need to work hard and prove how much more work do I need to put into it to prove that I can deserve or I can, I can 
to earn, earn the trust to get into such a church. Now, the frustration that comes from with that. Now, that's when you hear church in Africa is growing. And I know that such a church is, ch such a door is locked on account of my being a slender uh, liability like brother from Africa. Now, that's disturbing. Mm -hmm. Now, don't tell me about how the church is together and how the church is leading. If it were leading, someone would be more than actually begging me to come and say something to the church. That's, and that's, to, to inter that's interesting. Hmm. I think that when Christianity gets too much political power, has too much political influence, has too much economic uh, stability, it loses what is truly Christ about it. And I think that is happening in America. Yes, yes. So, But in, in portions of Africa, it's still pushed to the fringes. Christians are still, uh, they're still persecuted. Oh, definitely. They're, I mean, it's, in, it's dangerous to be a Christian. It's dangerous to, to profess this, this faith. In America, it's not. It's accepted. It's, it's, so I think, I think that's, that's what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm definitely not arguing And I understand. That, and I yeah. understand. And totally, I understand. Oh, and I'm so glad for what the Lord is doing in our villages, mm -hmm. in everywhere. My mother is a prayer warrior. It's her prayers that keep me here even now. Mm -hmm. And she's never been to school. She, her first Bible, I got her, her Bible when I went back home last summer. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine someone holding their first Bible at 75 or 76. And they don't read, they, but they are so, so excited about this Bible. They carry it all around. And it's other people who read for them that Bible. So that rubber on the road faith is happening and it's real. So I think my concern is just like all the double talk about, uh, oh, so my, we, you have so much learned from the African church. I'm like, where are you going to be learning it from? Like on osmosis? Like how do you learn? <laughs> like. <laughs> Let's go back a bit. Remember in the last episode when I talked about my family's and specifically my dad's experience going through a military coup in Phnom Penh, Cambodia? You don't? You just skipped all the previous episodes and came right to this one? You didn't expect me to continue a narrative connection I established in a previous episode through this one? Well, you've certainly picked an interesting episode to jump into cold turkey, but let me catch you up very quickly. My parents were missionaries, we lived in Cambodia, and a military coup broke out, destroying the capital we lived in. Mom and I evacuated the country by armed escort. Dad stayed behind to take care of Khmer Christians who couldn't leave. There. You're caught up. Now. I am a deeply skeptical man. I have a hard time with how loosely Christians like to throw terms like miracles and the divine around. Christians in America will refer to pretty much anything that affirms their concept of a Santa Claus God doling out sweet promises of prosperity and a future as a, quote, miracle. I've had Christians tell me they received a word from God for me when they were definitely just sharing their opinion. We use interventions in our lives to justify breakups, for heaven's sake. You think Yahweh has harsh opinions on you dating Brad? You can break up with him. He's not a good listener. You don't need God to tell you what to do. Be a grown woman, Angela. Anyway, I say that about myself because I really don't know what to do when I hear things like what I'll share next. A big part of the reason my dad was in Cambodia at all was to oversee the construction of the country's first Bible school to begin training the first generation of homegrown Khmer pastors and church leaders. Our mission agency spent some real cheddar on this bad boy a beautiful white stone complex guarded by high walls just outside the city, nestled amidst a small shanty village. 
The buildings of the school were built like a horseshoe around a courtyard, and in the middle of the courtyard stood a massive white cross. Keep in mind, Cambodia is a Buddhist country that had all of its Western influence gutted after the communist Khmer Rouge regime took over and purged the country. There is no cultural significance to the cross. It's an almost meaningless shape. When the coup started, soldiers started looting everything they could get their hands on. Every business had the front blown open and the insides completely emptied. They stole urinals off the walls. No joke. So here's my dad, alone in this smoking, rubble-reduced city, and he has to go check on the Bible school, which is brand new and has almost certainly been shelled and picked clean. He pulls up to the gates of the compound and notices they have been forced open. He sees the tracks left behind by tank treads as it rolled through, flanked by dozens of boot prints. Then he sees where they stop, where the tank flipped to Yui, and where they all left. The school was absolutely untouched. No bullets, no bombs, not a single door even attempted to have been opened. Dad was actually kind of offended. They didn't see anything they liked? He worked hard on this shit. What gives? My dad finds two boys from the village and asks them what the deal is, and they tell him they saw the tank push the gates open, the soldiers run in, halt, and then just run away. Run away. For reasons I still don't understand, my dad feels compelled to drive to a freaking company command center for the Khmer military force in the area, and he demands to speak to an officer. I'm not making this up. This six foot three inch, burly chested white man starts berating a fatigue wearing 19 year old platoon commander about why they didn't rob his school blind. He worked hard on it, damn it. What gives? We were gonna loot your building, you foreigner. But when we got there, we saw soldiers. What soldiers? By your big statue, we saw two huge soldiers, bright like the sun, with swords, covered in fire. We were scared, so we left. What the hell, right? I heard this story a bunch growing up because this one was a big hit when Dad had to come back and speak at churches, but I still don't know if I believe it. It's insane. It's like Old Testament insane. I don't know if I believe in angels or whatever, but this soldier from Cambodia with no Western Christian influence said he saw what he saw, and it was enough to frighten him and his men into fleeing. Dad took that story to other Christians in the area, and soon believers were putting up bamboo crosses in front of their homes from the capital to the countrysides. One story started circulating about a group of Christians that were praying together in a small hut when a rocket landed nearby. It completely blew the shack away, but no one was hurt. Soon, whole streets and villages were putting bamboo crosses out. Dad would ask people why they had it out, and people would say, we don't know what it means, but it keeps people safe. There is something truly bizarre about Christianity that has been true about it from the beginning of its inception. It thrives in adversity. The Christian faith is best watered by strife, affliction, and trouble. Historically, Christianity shudders and buckles under its own weight when it gains too much power, political control, or wealth. Christianity bloats and rots when it is the tool of the exalted, but blooms when it is the comfort of the broken. From the beginning, the way of Jesus was a path of surrendering control, confessing pain caused and received, and believing in life being about more than our present circumstances. It was about fulfillment being found in love and grace, not in status or privilege. Christianity spread like wildfire under the boot of Roman law, giving courage and hope to the conquered and the enslaved. When the Christian empire of Rome collapsed, 
It was Irish monks on the edge of the known world who kept the traditions of faith, prayer, and liturgy alive during the barbarian-ravaged years of the Dark Ages. When the Roman Catholic Church reached its zenith of power and opulence, Martin Luther declared that the Vatican had lost its way and lost sight of God, and he reprinted the Bible in a language that the common man could speak, committing a cardinal sin by removing power from the priests and putting it in the hands of peasants. Here in America, our own turn-of-the-century revival of Pentecostalism and Evangelicalism was rooted in the poorest communities of black sharecroppers and inner-city tenants. Faith taught by Jesus Christ resembles little more than oppression when it is brandished by anyone with a crown, an army, or a corporation. But in the hands of the poor, needy, and outcast, it is hope for a better tomorrow. We seem to find ourselves at a similar crossroads in the history of faith. The United States is the most powerful country in the world, with an economy that shapes the global market and a military-industrial complex that dwarfs anything the earth has ever known. The modern American evangelical church is one of the largest bodies of Christians in history, and many of them deeply believe that these United States are a Christian nation. But look at what being a Christian nation has gotten us. Look at the way our fundamentalism has shaped entrenched politics and forged division along every imaginable line. Look at the way our defense of American Christian values has driven us into a global war against extremism and radical terrorism. Look at who we elect to represent us. And look at who we give our money to in exchange for the promise of fulfillment in our God-given right of the pursuit of happiness. Young people are leaving faith in droves, feeling alienated and betrayed. Yet at the same time, in areas of the globe where poverty is a way of life, trafficking of women and children is a rampant industry, and Christians come face to face with persecution and threat of death, faith is thriving. The church is growing in corners of the world America only recognizes from news interstitials between political pundits arguing over who should get health care. If there is a God, they don't seem to be interested in power and influence. They seem interested in influencing the world through the faith of the powerless. When Jesus walked on earth, he made many comparisons, but one of my personal favorites is his metaphor about vines and branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who remains in me will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus grew up in wine country, in a wine culture. His first miracle was making wine. Wine was important. Wine was life. Have you ever heard someone talk about wine being a good vintage? Or they say something like, Ooh, yes, that's a good year. You know what makes for really great wine? Really bad soil. The more difficult the soil, the more stuff the vine has to work to grow through. The more the branches have to draw nutrients from the vine, and the better the grapes will be. The last thing you want for great grapes and great wine is perfect conditions. In vino veritas. In wine, truth. Do you think prophecy functions different in an African context versus an American context? Oh, prophecy in Africa, mostly the definition of prophecy is totally different from what I think is prophecy. But ooh, in Africa, talk of prophecy, ooh. prophecy is saying I saw, I had a dream that I saw you doing this and this. Like it's all tied up with uh, prosperity gospel. That's, that's a ministry that needs to be redeemed, mm-hmm. whereby we can talk and engage. And then I'll just like be, have some humility in prophecy where we can engage and say, but prophets mostly, a prophet is a person 
who is uh, uh, opinionated, who has has it all right. I mm. mean, uh, totally right, and can never be quest should never be questioned because they have the final word, and they are closer to God. That's yeah, what it feels like. We we have the the same thing happens here. Yeah, the same thing happens here in America. We have both dealt with people who have used the language of the word of God to essentially just try to get what they want. Yes. Mm. We've we've both experienced that. I think every I think that's why so many young Americans end up leaving the church because they just kind of feel beaten over the head by religion instead of actually engaged by a powerful faith. And may I address that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Um, I come for some reason God has been pleased to deal with me as a perpetual outsider in the church, in institutions, like wherever I go, I speak from an outsider perspective than as an insider. I know it would be great to be an insider, to, to have access to the resources, to have uh, connections with the powers that be. Now, in my case, it's not been that way. And so from some reason, whether from my village growing up in a totally, uh, totally impoverished, like extremely impoverished home where we didn't go to church. My father never went to church. He went to church only once before he died. I, I saw him at church only during my wedding. Before I was born, maybe he was going to a Catholic church. Like all this, we just very, very, very poor. And so even from right from our village level in our Pentecostal church where I started checking it out, we was I was the son of that man, and the name of my father is not like this wonderful name that you want to be associated with. So it's there's some shame to mm-hmm. it. So I am this outsider, perpetual uh, outsider, and there are times I've felt almost all through until this point, just feeling so this, um, uh, just so uh, confused mm-hmm. or dissatisfied with the whole system. And I have stuck it out by God's grace. By God's grace. So that I I have this deep-seated belief now that the church is God's. Even if men may want, and God uses people as the under-shepherds for sure, I believe that. But I know that man doesn't have the final word. And even right now, I know there are many avenues that are locked and uh, closed because people are not sensitive to his voice. Yet I know and I've seen the Lord and experienced him enough to know that you, if you're obedient to his call, he will use you in the same church even where doors are locked up mm-hmm. for his glory in his own way. And he will bypass some famous system. So that's something I would say to the young people or to whoever who might be feeling disillusioned by the systems. I have seen the Lord open doors and just just against the wishes of people and people in the church, including leadership and surprising surprising people Mm. it's going to be very ironic that I'm about to tell you that we're kind of uh, we're running up on our time which is the the white person thing to do to tell you (laughs) even Africans are not going to be sitting there for three hours without caring when it's going to end so So, uh, do you want to end us the way we normally do um 
I we we normally we like to end our podcast by asking our guest um, if there's anything about faith or God or Christianity or your experience with any of those things that you would like to to share with listeners. We like to 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 end with that. I would all I would also like to add to yours. Um, feel free to answer any of that you like. And also, I would be interested if you think there's anything that us as Americans and as American Christians could learn from Kenya, from Kenyans, from Kenyan Christians, if there's anything uh, that you think we would benefit from knowing from an outside perspective. I just want to thank you for having me. This is coming a oh, few yeah. days to my graduation. Thanks so much for Our having pleasure. me. Our yeah, pleasure. Thanks for Thank coming. you so much. So, yeah. And um, you know what? After um, when we had the African versus African-American conflict debate that you know about, and we, it's really, um, it's quite something. And there were all these mean <laughs> sentiments from either both sides. Mm-hmm. And some things, the, uh, my African-American brother was my friend debating and saying some really things I would very uncomfortable to hear what the African American brothers and sisters think about us, and then of course I also said some things that that were not very comfortable. But that eventually we we came to a point of agreement, and I remember being asked, "Hey Gideon, so is there something that um, you think that you share a point of commonality that you share with African Americans?" And I was like, "We share everything. We are blacks." And blackness is under attack. Hmm. So it doesn't matter where you're from. Just being black, that button of blackness is cut across the board. Honestly, I've had even donations or neediness and or times of times when I've... And it's black people. Somehow, somehow, black people for some reason who came up and rose to the occasion. Am I downplaying my African, uh, my white brothers and sisters who have been incredibly generous and hospitable? No, I'm not. But I'm just saying there's something about blackness and people feeling you cry. There's something that you... you, you so what I would say, uh, that's what just to say that we may be white versus black, rural versus, versus urban. Mm-hmm. We are humanity. And we got so much bringing us together. And being here, there are things that I've seen that um, they cut across the board. Just the fact that men have no enough room to lament or express their emotions because men are supposed to be strong. And so there's no freedom to cry or weep or do anything because men should be men. And I'm like, oh, I thought that's coming just from my tribal group in Meru. So it's it's actually an American thing, it's an Asian thing, it's everywhere, it's a Latino thing. Men cannot just like, what's up with me? I'm so crazy, I'm so mad. Oh, God have mercy on me. You can't cry, you can't express yourself. Even in times of death, you can't even like grieve freely. So these are things that we need to really come together and help ourselves. And realize that we have more in common than more than divinities. Even the issue of women, I come from a people group in uh, my pl- where a woman doesn't matter how many degrees you have, we might never be able, able at least I, I think that will change eventually. But to vote someone to be a member of parliament for everyone now, there are women rep- representatives who, of course, 
and if there was an option we would even vote a man to be a woman representative because we there's women are looked down upon or something from the olden days mm. even and i just believe so much in the power and potential of women Mm-hmm. And to see in Pentecostal circles, even my own denomination or whatever else, like women look down upon whether they are white or black or Asian, mm-hmm. we are dealing with the same troubles and same problems. Mm-hmm. And we need to come together and right the wrongs of humanity. Let's not be deceived by all this individualism and mm-hmm. prosperity gospel. Me, 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 me. We are, we are richer together and we can make each other rich and let's not let our, uh, our whatever... Um, divide us and uh, making America great again. You guys put your house in order. Come to Kenya. Come to Kenya, not just to see animals, but to see the people <laughs> and be ready for the dust and all that. Come and and put uh, corporate on our own and everything. Let's partner and make Kenya great and Africa great and let's be big, one big family. Blessings. Love it. Thanks, Thanks so everybody. Much. Thanks man. for tuning in, Thanks everybody. Thanks all and blessings. Amen. Whoa, what's that? A bonus conga drum voiceover at the end of the episode. This is basically our post credit scene that you only get to if you don't rush out of the theater as soon as the movie ends. Fun fact, did you know those post credit bonus scenes are actually called stingers? I might have learned that just now reading this. Anywho, if you've enjoyed the back view at all over the course of our first year, could you do us a favor and rate us on iTunes? It takes less than a minute, I promise. Just search for the back view on your podcast app or in the iTunes store, click reviews, hit write a review, and give us some stars. I suggest five. And some words. Write anything you like. And boom, you're done, and we are very happy. Now, if you're feeling really into this podcast, or you're just into Dan's buttery voice and generous frame, hey there. you can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash thebackpew and donating five bucks a month to the show. That may not sound like much, but it's already helped us buy new gear for the show, which ultimately makes it more pleasurable for you to listen to. Okay, last of all, here are some updates about our wonderfully supported Patreon community and all the crazy awesome stuff they're up to. Documentary film stud Jake Viramontes has just released his latest project titled Killing the Rock, about the horror of the Syrian war as seen through the eyes of 60-year-old artist and refugee Abu Rajab. It's an intense, immersive exploration of the power and purpose of art to transcend even the most oppressive environments. These crazy mofos shot this thing just five kilometers from the border of Jordan and Syria, where the war continues to devastate society. You can see all of Jake's stunning work on Vimeo today. Jackie Viramontes, a relationship coach and overall spiritual sage of a woman, has recently launched her book titled, I Can't Believe I Dated Him, a seven-step guide to help women know when to break up, when to stay single, and when they've met the one. Jackie was recently featured on E! News and has already reached the top of the charts on Amazon. So ladies, grab yours today. And dudes, if you want to know why you got dumped, go ahead and buy a copy to get the behind-the-scenes look at the reasons why. Mm. Johan Kalilian, who shared his story about religion and sexuality on episode 9 of The Back View, has recently published his first book titled Inside, A Leadership Guide for People Who Are Crazy Enough to Think They Can Change the World. Buy it today on his website, johanspeaks.com. Arlene Yuan is opening a new location of her T-Pop store in downtown LA next month. T-Pop is a Taiwanese-inspired cafe by day and an art space by night. They do awesome events like comedy nights, movie screenings, and pop-up markets on the regular. So check out tpopla.com and enjoy all the tea goodness. Oh, and they're hiring. So, you know, if you're looking for a dope T-Rista job with a great boss, T-Pop is your spot. All right, last but not least, Gideon, who you just heard, is fundraising for his PhD program and transition to the UK as he's already left to study at the University of Birmingham. Go to gofundme.com slash Gideon Mumbai graduation transition to support him today. 
You can find all these links on the backpewpodcast.com or just do some basic Googling because you really can't not find these people if you try. So to recap, five stars, five dollars, and or five minutes of your time to check out what all these beautiful people are up to. That's all for now. We'll see you next month when we interview the performance poet, urban educator, emotional empath, and self-described mystic, Danielle Bennett. All right, smooches, y'all.